Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This episode was produced by Ben Murray. Today's episode is with Nate Boyer, a fellow Green Beret and former football player for the Texas Longhorns and Seattle Seahawks. He's now an aspiring film director and stays highly involved in volunteer work. In the early 2000s, still young and in search of a meaningful life, Nate took a trip to Darfur as a relief worker. He still says it was one of the most pivotal and defining moments in his life. After opening his eyes and expanding his worldview, Nate enlisted in the army with the goal of serving in special forces. The regiment's motto, De Oppresso Liber, which is a Latin phrase for to free from oppression, resonated with him as he desired to do more for his country and the world as a whole. After several years and multiple deployments, Nate decided to go on to college at UT Austin with one of his goals being to play on the football team. Throughout this time, he still served in the National Guard and even went on combat deployments during the offseason. When he finished with college, he got called up by the Seattle Seahawks for training camp and played during the team's preseason before ultimately having to hang up another uniform. Nate's an incredibly inspirational guy. In the episode, we talk about some of the sources of his inspiration, the value of setting difficult goals, showing empathy in what you do, and doing things you love to do and how it's the opposite of crazy. Nate's next goal is to direct feature films. As he works through a challenging new career in the movie industry, he balances that with plenty of volunteer work and outreach largely through a charity he co-founded called Merging Vets and Players, or MVP. Over the past few years, Nate's been covered extensively for his interactions with former San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick and the hot-button issue of honoring the American flag at football games. He's been called up for countless TV, radio, and podcast appearances, especially in recent months. To avoid redundancy, we didn't spend any time talking about this, but if that does interest you, I sincerely hope you use a resource that features Nate speaking in his own words. We had plenty of other interesting topics to discuss. People respect you more when you put other people first, or at least when you try to, when you try to listen to somebody. Thanks for listening. Okay, sounds good. We'll get into it. Uh, Nate, thanks again for uh, being on with us. We typically read up on our guests before they come on, and I got to say that you've had the most to read up on by far. I apologize. <laughs> so, I know there's one theme that comes up a lot, and in the interest of time, we'll let people listen to other podcasts to get the scoop on that. But with that, you've transitioned to sort of a public life, right? And being a Green Beret, you know, we always describe ourselves as quiet professionals, but then some of us make career choices that puts us a little more in the public eye. So how have you uh, sort of dealt with that in contrast to your time in the military? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. And it's like, it's funny because, I mean, you know, the community, you know, the, the, the special operations community, more than even just the veteran community. And actually, actually, to me, it's justifiably so. We are so hypercritical. I'm hypercritical of myself and our community and other people, but I know we are as a whole. So like, you know, no matter what you do or what I do or whatever anybody does, if it is public in some way, it's going to come with a huge amount of scrutiny. And that's like, I'm totally okay with that. I don't, I don't love it (laughs) when you just get crucified for something, but like, uh, I, I volunteered for it. Just like I volunteered for the military. Nobody made me you know, go try and play football. Nobody made me pursue this, this, uh, career in film and television. And so it's, you know, it's my fault. <laughs> it's my choice. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and it's all good. It's all good, but I, I actually don't mind it, you know? And, uh, I think it's necessary. The checks and balances that happen. Sometimes it's definitely overboard. I mean, the things, 
you know, people say that, you know, oh, you're a disgrace to the Green Beret or whatever. Sure. It's, like, All right, man. it's probably uh, social so media, they, partially anonymous people. Yeah, yeah, partially. Sometimes not. I mean, sometimes not. It's been uh, okay. there's guys that I that I didn't serve with in combat, but that I knew in the military that I knew um, in SF or that I've worked with at some level in the veteran space after, you know, have said things like that. But then like those same guys have turned around and said other things very positive. It's just, it's just how we are, man. And that's, yeah. that's I think a really good lesson for our country. Like the way that the team room operates, the way that we communicate with each other isn't always uh, PC <laughs> and it's yeah. uh, you know what I mean? But like we get a message across and usually we can get past it. You know what I mean? If we're willing to have that conversation, if we're willing to like, yeah, let's go ahead and butt heads on this thing. Let's lock horns for a minute and, uh, and, and let it out and kind of get it out there, clear the air that we can move forward and figure out a solution or whatever. And, uh, so that, so that's good. But you know, when I was 19, I graduated high school, I started working on a fishing boat down in San Diego and I didn't want to go to college at the time. I was interested in doing a firefighting thing. So I went to took some firefighting classes and then that was just like, I, I don't think I was ready to sort of take a career or sort of, you know, I guess grow up in a way yet. And that sudden interest in film and television, like I wanted to, there was like certain stories that just kind of spoke to me and kind of hit me in a, hit me in a certain way. And I, so I moved up to Los Angeles to, to pursue that. And I didn't really know, how to pursue that or where I would pursue that. I mean, I didn't want to ask my parents to send me to film school or anything. Cause I, I just, I wasn't even sure if I was fully into it, but even though it, it, I didn't really fully pursue that at the time, that was something that stuck with me through all my time in the military and in college as well. I, I, I always knew I would come back to Los Angeles and come back and try to do that. I mean, I want to, I want to have my own production company. I want to make movies. Like that's what I want to do. So I knew that that was going to happen. Um, yeah. The football thing, you know, which is also kind of very public when you when you walk on to a school like University of Texas and, you know, you get an opportunity with the with the Seattle Seahawks. Those are two of the most, you know, popular sports teams in the world. I mean, it was just like it was my American dream to go try and play football. And, uh, you know, with that, once I did make the team, and once I actually started playing and, and kind of earned a starting job, then, yeah, it, it, it certainly became public. And that's just, uh, and I heard a guy say this before to, to speak on the quiet professional thing. I heard a guy say, well, it's, it's quiet professionals, not silent professionals. And I was like, that's interesting. I mean, it's also kind of convenient uh, for, <laughs> for someone like me. Uh, but I guess it's true in a sense. If it's like, if you're trying to approach what you do publicly, always with humility and always with this understanding that a lot of the reasons you have this platform and this opportunity was because of my time in the military was because my time in special operations, you know, people hear green beret, they're like, Oh wow. It does give you, you know, a second look maybe where it normally wouldn't. So I always have to recognize that first of all, but then always have to, um, I have to talk to, have conversations with myself. And, and if it's something that I truly love and I truly want to pursue, uh, I, I can't let that stuff get in the way to worry about, uh, you know, the, the, the public stuff and the scrutiny and whatnot. That's a great way to look at it. So you talk about being on a fishing boat and then moving to L.A. to try to get into acting and film. There's a story in the L.A. Times where it said you were partly homeless and rudderless. How accurate is that? Well, it's definitely rudderless. <laughs> uh, yes. You know, I, I, I didn't have. Uh, I didn't have 
I don't want to say direction because I had people in my life, like my parents are awesome. And yeah. you know, they were, they were always like supportive. Of course, when I was younger, I think like a lot of, a lot of parents, uh, uh, people that go into to the world that we went into, you know, they wanted what's best for me. It was a focus on definitely a focus on like, yeah, you can play sports and you can do these things you want to do, but you got to get your freaking homework done. You got to do your chores. Like it's not a, it's not a negotiation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Here's what you do. And so I, I had that. It's not like I didn't have structure. So when it says like, when I say like, you know, rudderless, it was more like, I, I just didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know who I wanted to be. I didn't know. I, I did know that nothing I really did at that time in my life at, at you know, 19, 20 years old made much of a difference. Uh, in anybody else's, <laughs> at least a positive one. I, you know, I did, that's not totally true. I, I did work with my children, children diagnosed with autism for a number of years in LA. That was kind of my day job, which was really cool. I mean, I was very fortunate to have, have that, you know, and, and, and it was simple what I did. I just, I hung out with the kids. I, I helped them uh, teach them to play sports. You know, one kid, I would visit him at his elementary school once a week at lunch. And I would like help him make friends. You know what I mean? Like that was, I got, I got paid to do that. And it was, uh, it was cool. I mean, it was like, it was something different. It was in a city like Los Angeles where, you know, it's tough to find, uh, sometimes it can be very tough to find any kind of work that's fulfilling, yeah. uh, at least, uh, you know, for your soul. Uh, that was something that I did have. So I did have that. Uh, but otherwise, like I just wasn't, I mean, I was into the, into the film TV stuff, but I wasn't super committed. I wasn't working towards it really in any way. So I was just sort of floundering. And when I first moved up to Los Angeles uh, from San Diego, I had about 300 bucks. I had this little, you know, hatchback, little Honda hatchback, and I didn't have much stuff. You know, I kind of crammed my stuff in there. I think my buddy drove like a, cause I, I moved up with a bud. Uh, he drove like a U-Haul up with both of our stuff. And he went up there and he moved in with some girl and I moved up there not realizing how expensive, uh, places were. I, I stayed in a hotel for a few nights, but it, even like a cheap crappy, you know, Roach motel. Yeah. And I was running out of money fast. And I was like, I didn't really have it. I got like my first job I got up there was like a, I was, a, you know, at a movie theater, you know, scooping up popcorn and, uh, it was like five bucks an hour. And I couldn't, I couldn't live off that. I couldn't find a place for real. Uh, unless it was going to be far, far from LA. So it was, it was summertime. It was warm. <laughs> I, and I just lived in my car for like five months, you know, and I, I, I used to sleep in this, uh, I used to sleep in the parks, like in Beverly Hills, <laughs> like the nice parks. So I would like go park my car with my sleeping bag and just go out and roll it out and, you know, wake up in the morning. There's like people doing Tai Chi, uh, you know, in the grass, about a hundred, hundred feet from me. And eventually I got my window knocked on a few times by the police and, you know, I got woken up in a park a couple times. And so it was like, uh, it, I, I never got a ticket or anything, but it was time to move on and figure it out. Uh, yeah. and I was saving, saving a little bit of money. And, uh, and then I started working with the, with the kids and, uh, I had enough to, to, I moved to, into a, <laughs> I moved into a two bedroom, two bedroom house with, with, uh, four people. So I lived there for maybe another six months. And then I finally had enough to like, you know, get a little studio apartment. So that's sort of the homeless thing. It wasn't like I was <laughs> sleeping in the gutter, no shoes on my feet. Like I was fine. I was eating. I mean, I was good. I wasn't panhandling or anything. I just could literally couldn't afford a place. 
at the time. And I did, and I did shed too much pride to ask my parents for, for help because they would have in a heartbeat. I mean, they would have a hundred percent just been like, yeah. of course, we're, you know, we'll, we'll make it, we'll help you whatever you need. Um, but yeah, that's it. That's a story there. Cause you're a, so, I mean, looking through, you know, what you've written and what's been written about you, you seem like a very selfless person at every stage of your life. Do you get a lot of that from your parents? I don't know if I'm honestly selfless, man. I think I just try to be, first of all, my parents are very selfless. Uh, my dad, he just retired recently and he worked for, you know, roughly 40 years at a golden gate fields horse racing track in Berkeley. And he's a racehorse veterinarian. And that dude worked 12 hour days, seven days a week, counting Christmas. You know, uh, he was up at 4:45 every morning getting his crunches in and, you know, a few push-ups and stretching. And then he's out the door, you know, at 5:15 or something with a bagel in his mouth. And, uh, he down at the track by six and he's working till at least six. And then he come, I mean, crazy. And he would take talk, he would take a, you know, take a day here and there. Um, or even if he had, you know, the time to take a vacation, he would do that. But like every day he was home, he was pretty much working, you know, but he would still make it to our, you know, my ball games. He would make it to whatever he had to make it to. He would figure it out. And then my mom, I mean, she got, uh, she got her PhD from, from Cal Berkeley in environmental engineering. And so she worked in a, you know, as an engineer in a super male dominated field where she was the only, uh, you know, she was the only gal. And she, people just, you know, I mean, it's still, it still exists today at some level. It's definitely different, but I think at that time it was just like, it was still like the woman's place idea. Right. And, uh, not only that, my parents had three kids and they somehow managed all that. You know, my mom, you know, took us to school, did the whole thing while still working while, you know, after finishing her, her PhD and then worked for, you know, her entire our entire childhood she never didn't work she never was just like you know housewife or whatever uh but she did all those duties and so basically both of my parents just lived for us <laughs> so you know that's ultimate selflessness so for, for me i mean a lot of those things that i do that maybe people see as selfless like i do those things because they make me feel good too though it's not just purely out of like i'm just a good you know giving person like yeah. It's I, I feel a responsibility as an American, first of all, because we're very fortunate um, to be here, that I, I need to give back in some way. I need to try to give back in some way. And then also when it comes to the veteran community, like I know how those struggles can be. I know how hard it can be, uh, yeah. as I'm sure we'll talk about with transition. Yeah. And, um, you know, our, our motto in the Special Forces is De Oppresso Liber. And that's something that really spoke to me before I joined. And it's something that I want to continue to at least attempt to live by uh, for the rest of my life, even back here in the States. So like, I think all those things contribute to that, you know, but I also know like uh, I would be lying if I said that I didn't, I didn't know that people respect you more when you put other people first, or at least when you try to, when you try to listen to somebody and you try to genuinely take into account what they have to say as, uh, uh, their reality and even uh, potentially truth. I mean, it may adjust your thinking on things. It does take humility to do that, though. And, and I think we do live in a society where we're lacking that greatly. It's like people don't they don't want to hear the, another side of a I don't want to call it an argument, but a, a, of any issue, you know. And, and we're a very we're in a very because of that we're in a very polarized binary 
uh, state of mind in our country right now. And it's been that way for quite some time. It's not a new thing. Um, yeah. It's been growing, I think, over the last decade. It's probably because of social media, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. But it's uh, it's frustrating, you know? And, and I, I just try to be the antithesis of that as much as I can. Cool. Yeah, so as a, like a precursor to joining the Army, you actually uh, went to Sudan and Darfur, and it doesn't seem like you had a big, robust plan. You know, you talked your way onto a flight. You just wanted to get there and see how things were going. What were some of the things that you did there and some of the things you saw as a relief worker that you, that you can still remember? Yeah, I mean, that, that sort of speaks to that trip changed my life, first of all. That trip it still is today like the biggest pivotal moment. Yeah. And I was, I was like 20, 22 or 23 I had increasingly over those, you know, couple of years of, of uh, I guess three years I've been in Los Angeles. By the time that I saw this this article, I was increasingly getting more restless, more frustrated, more angry at myself for just not being a person that that did anything that mattered, or at least feeling that way. I felt like I just didn't belong, and and I think part of that too was was so I was talking about with my my parents, knowing how much they gave to give me you know, an opportunity to pursue anything I wanted really. And I wasn't pursuing anything at all. Uh, that, you know, that, that doesn't make you feel as a, good as a person. And I saw this magazine or this time magazine article about, the, you know, it was titled the tragedy in Sudan. It was talking about genocide in the Darfur. 400,000 people had been murdered already, mostly men in these villages, uh, killed by this Janjaweed militia because, you know, it, their skin colors, slightly different tone, or they, you know, have slightly different religious beliefs. But like, to me, it didn't, I didn't quite understand that. And I just, I think I was just blind to the fact that oppression like that, hate like that, uh, I mean, genocide like that existed in our world today. I just was like, no, this is stuff of the past, you know, Um, this doesn't happen anymore. And obviously I was completely wrong. So I'm like looking at these images in the magazine and I'm just like blown away that this is, this is how some people have to live. And I just felt compelled to go over there and help. And so I called every NGO from doctors without borders to child fund to Catholic relief services. And all of them told me that I couldn't come volunteer because I didn't have any special skills. I didn't, uh, I I didn't have a college degree and they're like, what would you even do? (laughs) And I was like, I don't know, but I'm reading about how you're understaffed. You've got to need people to like, to like help build the, 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 I mean, the refugee camps are growing like crazy, you know, it's almost all women and children there. And like, you're going to need, I mean, young, strong men to like build these camps, right? Like you need people. I've done some fix-it jobs. I've worked a little construction here and there. Like I can do something and, uh, and I'm willing to do anything, you know? And they were like, yes, we understand that, but it's just doesn't, it's not that simple. I was like, okay, I got it. So, uh, I just ended up, I, I couldn't just t- at that moment, I just couldn't take no for an answer. I'd already like made my mind up. So I went to a, a travel agent and I, I bought a plane ticket to Darfur and I flew over there. To, uh, to actually into Jemena, uh, the capital of Chad, which is a neighboring country to the west of Sudan. And the Darfur sits right on the western border of Sudan. So it was pretty much the closest I could fly into. Plus, a lot of the refugee camps were actually on the Chadian side of the border. Just, you know, several miles or uh, maybe it's more like 100 miles. I'm not sure. But from like where the main fighting was happening. And so I, I went over there. I flew into Jemena in the airport, uh, which is like a 
I mean, it's the tiniest airport you've ever seen. And it's like the only thing that's blacktop at the airport was like the, the thin runway. It was just dust and dirt everywhere. And it's a, you know, primarily Muslim country and it's a, it's a, you know, developing country. And it was major culture shock, but despite the language and, and, you know, the outfits, I just wasn't, I wasn't used to any of it. Uh, and, uh, it doesn't, it feels so different than you know, what you see on TV or watching a movie when you're actually in it. I know you know that. And so I, uh, I started talking to people in the airport, the, the few that I could find that spoke English. And this one guy that worked at, it was like a little bar in there. And he just told me at 5 a.m., the United uh, Nations High Commission for Refugees they have a representative that comes in with a manifest for the flights that, to go out to the refugee camps. So I wait for this guy. <laughs> this guy shows up. He's like this five foot tall Chadian man. And there's all of a sudden, like out of the woodwork at 5 a.m. come all these photographers from Italy and whatever, like journalists. You know what I mean? And they got like cameras and gear bags and stuff hanging around them. And they're just trying to get out there to take pictures and tell a story. Right. And then there's me, who's just like, dude, I had like a, this red beard at the time. And uh, this like old seersucker coat, like that was my only, I, you know, I, I dressed, I dressed super modestly on purpose because of where I was going, you know, but I just brought, I just had one pair of pants, I had a couple t-shirts, I had this little shoulder bag, you know, that just had a change of boxer shorts and socks and a t-shirt, malaria pills uh, and toothbrush. That was about it. <laughs> Not much else. And so this guy comes up to me, we start talking. Uh, he's like, what, who are you with? And I said, well, you know, I'm supposed to be with so-and-so organization. I just told a big fat lie. I told him I got robbed in Paris and they took all my documentation and I don't have anything. <laughs> and I mean, I had my passport and I had my visa and all that. And I'm like, what else would I be doing here? I'm not on vacation. And he just, uh, he just believed me and, and I'm glad he believed me, you know? And he said, all right, well, let me see. I don't know if this the flight, most of the flights are full. And I was, I was like, okay. And then sure enough, like, we're getting ready. They're boarding the plane. The plane's all boarded. There's like this big old group of about 20 people. Like I said, there were all these journalists trying to like talk their way into something. And this guy walks over to the, you know, they got the little ropes there where they keep people behind. He walks right up to me and removes the rope and like pulls me through and closes it. Like it's like I'm in line at a, a Hollywood nightclub. He let me on the plane. They had one seat left and I got on the flight, flew out there. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I got to volunteer for two months. And I, my, my visa was up in 60 days, so it was a limited trip anyway. But, man, it completely changed my life. I, I, I did all those things I thought I would be doing as far as, like, digging trenches and building campsites and all that. But I also, like, I played soccer with the kids every day. There was hundreds of kids just in this one section I was working. And they had one soccer ball, right? I played yeah. soccer with the kids every day. You know, I'd jump uh, double dutch, jump rope with the girls um, as best as I could. There was a lot of elderly there and just, like, through a translator or something like, you know, tell, tell, tell them about America. They all wanted to hear about America and I'd listen to their stories. And then I would assist them in the, you know, I assisted in the medical centers, help pass out the food rations. I mean, they put me to work and I, yeah. and that was the second time, the second time I slept out under the, under the stars for a long period of time. I didn't have a bed or anything. I mean, they didn't plan for me to be there. So that was sort of the deal. Like if I wanted to stay there, I had to pretty much sleep with the people. So, I just had little mats out there on the ground and I just threw a blanket over me. I mean, dirty as hell. And, yeah. uh, it rolled up my, uh, rolled up my seersucker coat and stuck it behind my head. And like, that's how I slept every night. And man, I, I, I knew 
this was the life for me at that time anyway, because I just, I was per- full of purpose. I didn't have anything. I didn't want anything. You know, stuff just collects and it gets, it makes life a lot harder. And uh, I got malaria my last week there, actually, even though I took them doxy, it didn't work. Uh, and so this family put me up and they nursed me back to health, this local family. And they had this, so they put me on this little cot in this room and they had a radio that they put next to the bed and in the, in the tape player was Bob Marley. And so I listened to Bob Marley on both sides of that tape about three times through. And I was just absolutely sick of Bob Marley as much as I love him. And so I, I started flipping through the stations. The only station that came through was the BBC radio. And it was literally during the second battle of Fallujah. So I was listening to the play by play of one of the biggest battles of the global war on terror. And hearing about it was the main effort was the Marines in this, uh, in this battle. And, uh, I was listening to these men and women that were over there risking their lives for these people fighting for those that can't fight for themselves. And I just was like, this is it. That's it. That's like, that's the next level. That's the next thing for me. Like, that's what I want to do. These people are worth fighting for. I want to go fight for them. So I made the decision there. I was home a week later, uh, after I got nursed back to health and, uh, I found out about the, the Army Special Forces. And the reason I wanted to be a Green Beret was the motto. I read that motto, De Oppresso Liber, to free the oppressed. And I was like, that's it. That is me. That is who I want to be. Hey, everybody. We'd like to take a minute of your time to talk about two great nonprofit organizations. Both are very important to me because they were founded in memory of my personal friends and brothers in arms. And both are great to hear about because they're all about helping people. The Coast to Coast Foundation was founded in honor of Sergeant First Class Ryan Savard of 3rd Special Forces Group and U.S. Special Operations Command. It helps wounded Special Operations veterans close the financial gap between their medical needs and what's traditionally covered. The Foundation's annual cross-country motorcycle ride, The Ride for the Fallen, stops in more than a dozen cities across the country to strengthen communities and raise funds. All proceeds from the Coast to Coast Foundation go to assisting veterans in their recovery from combat and service-related injuries. This year's ride takes place from August 28th to September 12th. You can check out stops and find more about the ride by following CXC Foundation on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. While you're doing that, go ahead and visit coastxcoast.org to donate. Small Steps in Speech was founded in honor of Staff Sergeant Mark Small, Mark with a C, of 3rd Special Forces Group U.S. Army. It helps children with speech and language disorders get therapies, treatments, and devices needed to improve their communication skills. As a Special Forces medic, Mark selflessly cared for many sick people, a number of whom were children. More than a decade later, he still serves as an inspiration for this foundation. And for our Philly listeners, he was a native of nearby Collegeville, PA. To find out more about the foundation, visit smallstepsinspeech.org. You can go to Facebook or Instagram at Small Steps in Speech or Twitter at SS in Speech. To virtually participate in this year's annual On Your Mark 5K run, go ahead and visit the foundation's website or social media for a sign-up link. We also posted links onto our Instagram and our Twitter. Complete your run route by August 1st and post pictures or video to show your support. Go ahead and hit pause, sign up, and let's get back to the show. So you also came from this, like, you know, it's very close experience with another culture 
And we also know about Green Berets that you work through indigenous forces, helping them fight their own fight. So how valuable was that experience? You know, and was that one of the most fulfilling parts of your job in, uh, in combat or even in non-combat activities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, uh, it was something that when I was reading about the job description, you know, I mean, we say unconventional warfare. I mean, what does that even mean? And so I had to, to, you know, study that up and read up about what, like, what is this? What do the special forces actually do? And one of the uh, main tasks, you know, one of the pillars of, of who we are is foreign internal defense. So every mission we do for the most part is conducted by, with, and through indigenous people, indigenous forces. And so we go to Iraq, we go to Afghanistan, we go to Timbuktu. It doesn't matter. Yeah. We, we actually do go to Timbuktu. We do go to Timbuktu. That's true. <laughs> we go to Timbuktu. We don't go to Kalamazoo, um, yeah. but we go to Timbuktu. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we train and we sometimes live with and we fight alongside, you know, indigenous forces, host nationals. Uh, we're in Iraq, we're in Afghanistan, and we are shoulder to shoulder with those people. We got a different flag on our shoulders, but you develop, you know, a bit of a brotherhood uh, through training some of them. And uh, there's like, it's tough, man, because there's, I mean, you know, there's so many frustrating things about what we do. And there's so many barriers and, you know, customs and cultures that for me personally, I'll just never be okay with, I guess, or I just never will understand. But I, at some level, I have to, I have to at least try to accept that this is their, this is their reality. This is like, if I was born here and raised here, I would probably believe these same things and think a lot of these same things. And I, I don't really have a choice in that. You know, we're a bit of a product of our environment. And so, like, you know, having to put that stuff aside, if you can do that and see beyond that, you know, you're able to do some, some pretty incredible things. And you're also able to uh, relate to, to people that you thought you had nothing in common with on a different level and, and sort of laugh at the same stupid stuff sometimes. And from my time in the image that sticks out with me the most of anything that I saw and experienced and, you know, my very last deployment, I, I think I was two weeks away from uh, going home. And it was like the biggest, one of the biggest uh, gunfights I ever got in. And it was in Afghanistan in 2014, you know, and I was, I was playing college football at the time. It was like before coming home for my senior season. And we, we got in this, we got in this gunfight uh, luckily, none of the guys on my team, none of the Americans were killed. One, I think one guy got hit, but it was just a superficial wound on the uh, on his lower leg. And otherwise, we, we were very lucky because it was there was a <laughs> we we killed a lot of bad guys that day. Uh, and unfortunately, they did get one of our guys. You know, they got our Afghan counterpart. They they killed the captain actually of the of the Afghan special forces team we were working with. And I was on the I was on the tailgate of a of a humvee or a mad b it was definitely a mad b because there was also the 50 cal with the crow system up above me but the those crow systems you're in the in the vehicle you only see about five to ten percent of the battlefield through the screen and it's just tough to really see what's going on so having somebody like me out on the tailgate that could see 100 percent of the battlefield uh, even though i have a less uh, superior uh, weapon <laughs> in the 240 it was like I was laying down suppressive fire where I could so that troops could move so that, you know, that our Afghan counterparts and our Americans that were going house to house could move. And this captain gets 
shot in the neck, um, you know, to my flank, to my right, not far from me, but I couldn't leave my position because what I was doing was very necessary at the time. If I'd leave that gun and go treat him, more people are going to get shot. And so, but the first two people that showed up to treat him were two Americans, not even our medics. Our medics weren't nearby. It was our team sergeant and one of our communication sergeants. They went over there. They treat this guy. They dragged him behind uh, a vehicle, tried to save his life. And I'm, you know, I can hear them. They're right behind our vehicle um, doing what they can. And I mean, it was like, it's like they're saving their brother. Like their blood brother, not just their brother in arms. They were doing everything they could, you know? And like, I just, I mean, that was kind of heartbreaking just to hear that. Right. So then he, he doesn't make it. He passes, you know, we eliminate the threat and we fall back to the rear and they've got a medevac bird coming in. They're probably coming in to look at our, take a look at our guy too. But you know, also they were coming in to take this Afghan captain and they fly in, they land. It's not supposed to be like, this. it's supposed to be all Americans that approach the bird. That's the way it's supposed to work, but they broke the rules. We literally had exactly three and not even a plan. It's just how it worked out. We had three Americans and three Afghans, Afghan soldiers carrying this gurney of this dead Afghan captain out to the medevac bird. And they, they loaded on the bird, you know, and it takes off and the six men start walking back. They're moving back towards the convoy and one of the three Afghans just like drops to his knees and started just weeping. I mean, he just lost, like lost it because this was his, this is his leader. And I just watching him from the vehicle and, uh, to see that kind of like hurt and pain. And then like during his funeral later, getting a chance to, to talk to some of these men, the way that they revered him, not just as, you know, somebody that they knew or a friend, it was like, the pride that they um, had in, in their country and trying to be a part of making it better, try to try to be a part of like moving it forward. And then all the frustrations and the people in there within their country that try to fight that and try to keep it oppressive. That was the most important moment to me just to see that, to see that like our presence there, our time there, what we were trying to do, whether we were successful or not, honestly doesn't matter. Well, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter. To me, yeah. it's less important than the attempt. Like, I, I, I can't focus on the results in my life. I don't think we can as human beings all the time. We have to just do our best and do what we can. And to see that, that at least we had an impact, somewhat of an impact on instilling pride in country with these people and like wanting to you know, they want to have it. They wanted to have a democracy. So many of these folks that for me was like incredibly powerful. And I was like, you know, proud of what I was a, a part of, but also like, that's that human side of things where I just felt in that moment. And I think a lot of other guys that were watching it, they were wearing a, had an American flag on their shoulders of just like, wow, like this person, they feel the same way I feel about their their brothers their team you know what i mean and what they're trying to do and it's really tough when you lose somebody like that and that's someone you looked up to and uh you know in 2012 i lost my best friend uh, who was in 10th group with me and he was in, he was in a training accident wasn't even in a combat situation and same kind of feeling i felt the same way that that guy did and so that was just i don't know that was a that was one of those moments where I, that relatability and that uh um 
that understanding that we're that we're that we're the same in so many ways uh, really really shown through. Yeah, there's points in your career where you move past uh, like nationalistic pride to just pride in humanity, right? Yeah, definitely. I think that's. I mean, shouldn't that be the most important thing? I, I would uh, think. Yeah. I, I don't. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's not. <laughs> I, I would think it's got to be. It's not always emphasized, but sometimes you do notice the difference. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's what, that's to me, what is so great about America and what we need to continue to, to recapture, I guess, because it doesn't really feel like it right now. Is this like, is this pride in humanity? I mean, we're the most charitable country in the world. And when you speak on the military side of things, when, when, when shit goes down, who the hell do they call? Always us. And it's, right. we're always the first ones there. And we're usually the last to leave. And sometimes people get pissed off. Oh, you're, you're meddling with this. You're meddling with that. Leave those people alone, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, like when, when stuff happens, like I wasn't there, but I, I talked to a ton of people that, that went to Iraq, you know, in, in, in 03. And especially in the North, the amount of Iraqis that were so like, thank God the Americans are here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we've been waiting for you. You don't hear those stories ever. You always hear about, oh, we invaded this country. I'm like, these people are being totally oppressed, totally oppressed. And, and that's the same in Afghanistan. It's the same in so many parts of the world, places we've never even gone. And uh, yeah, of course, there's strategic reasons beyond just humanitarian mission as to why we go to, to combat. I, I totally understand that. But it doesn't mean that everybody going over there is just, stormtroopers trying to uh, take land. You know what I mean? And a lot of people think that. And it's just like, unless you've been there and experienced that, and some people that have been to war feel that way too, and I understand that. And I'm not saying that every conflict and every mission and battle or whatever all should have happened. There's things, we've made mistakes. We make mistakes. Human beings make mistakes. Uh, and America has made a great deal of them. But I just, I also feel like there's another side of this where uh, that people just don't see and don't understand um, of how many people that we do, we do help and at least, and, and, and try to <laughs> try to change things, try to move, move things forward for, for these, uh, for these countries where they just, you know, there, a lot of times there is no separation of church and state and there is no education. There is no basic medical care. Uh, a lot of places there's no clean water or food or clothes. I mean, yeah. Or are we just going to do nothing and leave them alone? Like, you know, you're meddling with their way of life. Well, if they're not, they have no quality of life. And part of what we're doing is to try to help give them some of that and put the power in the people's hands. Like, how is that? How is that wrong? Anyway, that's probably another podcast. But uh. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you, you you typically speak in like a you know professional tone, but you probably like to goof around too, huh? I do. Yeah. I, I, I'd probably goof around too much, especially in these days, this day and age, man, I got to watch it. I'm going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. And it's just going to get canceled <laughs> forever. You know? Yeah. How do you balance that? So like going from the SF team room to the college locker room, right? I know that, you know, you can't, you, you went to college as kind of an older guy. Your coach probably leaned on you for some more leadership. How do you strike that balance between being like a strong leader and then keeping it light when you need to? Yeah, I mean, luckily, those locker rooms were very similar. The, the people inside them were very different. I mean, you know, I was the young guy when I was in the SF team room. Yeah. And I was 
<laughs> by far the old guy when I was in the uh, college football locker room. But, I mean, you know how we are. Like, we only mature to a certain level in some things uh, when it comes to, like, locker room humor, right? Yeah. So there's that. And it's but we need that, man. We need some freaking levity. Our country needs some levity right now. And we need that in our lives. And that's, uh, and that's something I think in the military, especially with everything that you experience, the stakes of what you're doing, the life and death, you know, the austere environment, uh, the, the BS that trickles down, all those things. There's just a lot of frustration. There's a lot of really cool stuff that we get to do. And I'm so thankful for that, but there's also a lot of crap that we have to, to deal with. But, you know, how do we get through it? We have our we have our bitch sessions where we just complain about everything up and down. Yeah. And we make fun of everything up and down and everybody. And uh, it's almost a term of endearment. I mean, it is a term of endearment. If you, get, uh, if you get messed with, that means we know you can probably take it and you are, uh, you're part of that team. If you're not getting messed with, then you might, it might be cause for concern. Like, what am I doing to not fit in? Like, why, why do they feel like they can't make fun of me? Am I too sensitive? Am I, too, I don't know. And so, like, it's tough to, you can't really say the things that you say and have the conversations that we have in those locker rooms publicly. Not yet, anyway. I mean, I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to, like, more and more uh, interject that as much as I can because I think people need it. It's how we come to appreciate one another and how we come to relax and get away from living in this eggshell world. Um, it does seem like no one's willing to relax anymore. No, no, it's, it, it, it doesn't. I mean, uh, it, it's like everybody's just ready. Everybody's just got their thumbs ready to just cancel the next person. Um, you know, and, and it could be stuff that you said 10 years ago or what, I, who knows, man, I probably got a million skeletons. I don't even know about my closet. It'll come popping out at any moment or whatever. What am I going to do about it? Um, you know, I know I didn't do anything really bad. So I might've said something dumb at some point somewhere. I'm sure I did. And when it happens, I just have to deal with it, I guess. So how's it like connecting with a, with a generation, you know, kind of sort of like a half generation younger than you? I mean, that was different, you know, going back to college, the other freshmen were 19. I was 29. And, uh, you know, luckily a, a place like Austin was perfect because it was a, it was sort of, sort of a small city. It's like a big city now. But when I went there, it was a smaller city, not just the university of Texas. Um, I could, I could go out. I felt more comfortable because I was like, I could go out and hang with people my age. And there's not just the grad students, but there's people and there's a lot of big you know, industry in Austin. So it'll be good. And, and if I don't make the football team, it's no big deal. I'll still have all this. I'll still have Austin and, and uh, I'll figure it out. Well, I did make the football team and it turned out most of my friends were actually college kids, college age kids. I mean, I did have my group of friends that was older too, but especially during football season, like, you know, you go, <laughs> you go play a game on Saturday and then you go out Saturday night with the guys and whatever. I mean, it didn't matter that I was 30. Uh, I, I went to frat parties. Like, I didn't care. I had a good time. And, uh, uh, but you know, the stuff that's frustrating, it's just not that big a deal. I, I had no perspective at nineteen twenty. Like who, who am I to like judge a young person that doesn't, you know, that can't really relate to life experience that they haven't had any yet. You know, everybody goes through that. But also there was some really intelligent, thoughtful people that I learned from that were a lot younger than me, you know, that had, different perspectives that handled, conducted their, their selves in a, in a, probably a smarter way than I did a lot of times. 
more efficient way. You know, Austin's a very different town. It's sort of a blue dot in a red state. So it's yeah. such a mix of cultures and everything. My first trip to Austin, the first time I went there, a cab driver picked me up from the airport. And uh, he said, you know, the great thing about Austin is all the cowboys smoke pot and all the hippies carry guns. And I was like, I never, I didn't really think about it at the time. I just kind of laughed. And then later I was like, man, that is exactly Austin. It's one of those places that like, for the most part, and of course not across the board, but people kind of get past because it's such a crazy weird mix of people. That's why they say keep Austin weird. That is the slogan. Yeah. Portland stole it from Austin, by the way. Austin was first. Okay. Um, but, but it is, it is a weird place, you know, and it's got, uh, it's got all that, that it's got that heavy mix of that. It's got the old conservatives, uh, you know, money in town and it's the state capital is in Austin. Um, and then it's got South by Southwest and, um, crazy hippie hollow culture, you know, and, uh, and all that. So it, it, it was, it was perfect. I was glad I went there because it actually taught me a lot, you know, and I had to, it opened up my aperture quite a bit. And, and so, uh, you know, after, after playing four or five years, five years, yeah, I redshirted the first year. I, yeah. I was not good. I was not good when I walked on okay. the team. I mean, I never, I never played football growing up, and there was a big learning curve there, and I regretted that. You know, I played other sports. I was a decent athlete, but not only was I just not very good, I wasn't very athletic compared to these, these kids were. I mean, they're young men. They're yeah. freaks, man. They're fast and strong and big and, like, full-grown men. And... uh I just wasn't good enough to get on the field. So I didn't play at all that first year. The second year is when I started long snapping and uh, figuring all that out because the starter was a senior and he was graduating. And, uh, you know, I got to, I got to run down on kickoff coverage when we were blowing out Texas tech. Cause it was, it was veterans day. And, you know, I got, uh, I, I just, it was cool. I got that opportunity to go do that. That next off season, when I went over, I went overseas and brought a couple of footballs with me and started practicing long snapping more and more and came back and I won the starting job. Um, so I started for the last three years I was there. I got put on scholarship and all that. But yeah, it was, uh, I guess, five seasons I was with the team. So you went from like, a, so Green Beret is sort of known as like a jack of all trades, right? And then when you hit the football field, you actually picked a highly specialized role. So what was different about that? I mean, you know, you had to do one thing to perfection, right? Right. The reason I picked long snapping was it was probably the only shot I would have of, of winning a starting job, playing meaningful snaps in the game, right? Yeah. I wanted yeah. to contribute more than just being, you know, the, the guy that, that out-hustles everybody at practice. I wanted to contribute more than just being, you know, the, the, the guy that, that, that coach that Mac Brown asked to say a few words in the locker room after, a, you know, a tough loss or whatever. I wanted yeah. to be, I wanted to be a part of, uh, us winning, you know, and I wanted, and I felt like to have that voice, you've got to play. And I feel like people in the military can relate to that. And to have that voice in the team room, you've got to be a respected guy that like has yeah. seen some stuff, been out there, you know, been in the been in the trenches. Yeah, get a little more legitimacy to to the words you're saying. Yeah, yeah, you got to have your combat patch. You know what I mean? Yeah. You got to have that. And I thought. Even though these guys look at my background, oh, he was a Green Beret, cool. Yeah. I'm not playing. I feel like I just don't, I shouldn't have that. I shouldn't be that type of a leader. So I wanted to find a way to, to play. And long snapping is very specialized. It's like, it's a thankless job, which I was used to doing from time in the military, from honestly time in Darfur, whatever. And you have to be precise. Like you said, it's very repetitious. Uh, it's what you call a closed 
skill, much like shooting a free throw. Like, not like fielding a ground ball where I'm adjusting to uh, the ground ball. Every time the ground ball is hit, it's different. It's a controlled environment. I control the environment until I snap that football, you know, and then obviously when I'm blocking somebody or running down trying to make a tackle, that's a different skill. But if I can, if I can master this closed skill, much like shooting a pistol, that's a closed skill, unless you're in a combat situation, but when you're on the gun range, like you're in control of like the target doesn't move much like a punter doesn't move when I'm snapping it to him. And if I draw that weapon from my holster and put it up, you know, next to, near my chin, find that front sight post, present my weapon in front of my eyes towards the target down the line, squeeze the trigger. If I do all those things the same every time and I practice them over and over and I do one little piece at a time and sort of like master it. Yeah, I'm a jack of all trades in the special forces, but I become somewhat of a master of one or a few or whatever. And like mastering long snapping, which I didn't, I, I don't, I wouldn't consider myself a master, but I applied those same principles that I did to like shooting a pistol, like from that, from anywhere from everywhere from aim small, miss small to, uh, you know, your grip and stance and all those things. If they're the same every time, your results are going to be more similar your shock group's going to be tighter if you keep all those things that you can control consistent. And so that was, that just made sense for me. And like I said, like it's a thankless job. If you do it 500 times correctly and you screw up once, you're the bad guy. Everyone's like, ah, oh, freaking long snapper. He cost us the season. If a quarterback throws 500 passes and even if he's incomplete on 150 of them, you think he's a great quarterback. Wait a minute. Like that's not fair. Uh, it's very different. For sure, playing quarterback is way harder than doing a long, than long snapping. But it's just, it, you know, it's the nature of that job. Like, I mean, at least in college football, you know, I'm definitely one of the most famous long snappers ever. And it's because of my story. It's not because I was a great long snapper. It's from my backstory. But, like, they never get any glory is my point. Like, they never – no one ever cares. They're just like, oh, cool, long snapper, great. Uh, I'd rather go talk to any other position because it's more interesting. Yeah. Um, but that got me on the field. It got me that chance. And I thought it, I thought it granted me that, that voice in the locker room too. And that was my goal. My goal was to play college football, you know, and I just, I found a way I had to adjust and find a niche um, as many of us do in life to fit in and, you know, and follow our dream. And that was the only, was what God gave me. (laughs) That was just about the only position um, that made sense on the football field uh, for me to actually compete at. Hey everyone, this is the point where we take a break to thank you for listening to the podcast. If you're new, please take the opportunity to go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. Hit that subscribe button so that you can get our latest episodes every two weeks. More importantly, we know the most effective advertising is by word of mouth, so go ahead and share us with anyone you think will enjoy. If you want to engage with the podcast, you can find everything about us on thankyounowwhat.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at thankyounowwhat. And you can always get in touch directly by emailing thankyounowwhat at gmail.com. If you really like what we're doing here and you'd like to share the cost of doing business with us, there are a couple options. First, you can give a one-time donation via the PayPal link on our website. There we also have a link to our Patreon site, patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat. You can subscribe to give a fixed amount per episode, even if it's just a dollar. Please know that Ben and I are volunteering our time and effort, and that all net proceeds from this podcast 
will be redirected to nonprofits that support veterans as soon as we pay for things like hosting, software, and equipment. You can also choose to give directly to the nonprofits we feature, and we'll be just as glad. Thanks for joining us, and let's get back to the episode. And so you went undrafted, and then shortly after the draft, you got called up by the Seahawks. And now you had a chance to be among the best of the best. So what was it like to reach that tier after all that work you put in? Man, it was, uh, it was, it was awesome. I remember getting that call from Pete Carroll and from the GM, John Schneider, up in Seattle. And it was just like super surreal moment because, you know, I grew, I grew up a 49er fan, first of all, which is a big rival of the Seahawks, which is kind of yeah, funny. Yeah. But yeah. I grew up a 49er fan. And it was like, when I was a kid, it was Joe Montana and Jerry Rice and Roger Craig and Ronnie Lott, and all these legends. And the Seahawks are full of these legends too. Like they didn't quite have the dynasty that 49ers did, but I mean, they still have ways to go. But at the time when I went up there, it was Russell Wilson and Jimmy Graham and Richard Sherman and Cam Chancellor and Bobby Wagner and Doug Baldwin and Marshawn Lynch. I mean, it was like these guys that we're going to remember forever. A bunch of Hall of Famers. Yeah. It was crazy. Like, I had to choose, actually. I had a choice between that. It was the St. Louis Rams at the time. They hadn't moved to L.A. yet. St. Louis Rams or the Seattle Seahawks. And the Rams were 4-12 and the year before. And I don't know if I could I could name Chris Long, defensive end, who's a good buddy of mine now. Yep. I honestly don't know if I can name another Ram at the time. And they just were struggling. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it was just tough, man. They were struggling. They were already talking about, yeah, we're probably moving to L.A. And then I got the Seahawks, who also wanted to sign me, who had been to back-to-back Super Bowls. Seattle, I, I, it's a really cool city. I love Seattle. I've never been to St. Louis. And I was just like, I think after being in the Special Forces, after earning that Green Beret, I was like, man, I'm going to regret it. I, I know because either way, my odds are slim of making the final roster, of getting through training camp. Like, they're so slim. I was 34 years old, you know, the oldest rookie in, in NFL history already. I'm way too small for the position. I've only been playing football for five years. I've only been long snapping for three years. You know, the odds are not in my favor. So all things being equal, I'd be nuts to not take Seattle because I know I'll, I'll look back on it. And if I get, you know, if I say I get cut from the Rams or whatever, and I'm just like, man, I – I didn't go for the, the tougher one. <laughs> you know what I mean? I didn't, uh, I, 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 and I just, I just didn't feel okay with that, but I just remember from that choice. And that's, that, that choice is pretty, it's pretty representative of how I kind of live my life. And that's okay. I'm so glad I'm not a gambler. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not a gambling man because I would be broke because I yeah. could never turn down that challenge. I'd always have to go big. So anyway, yeah. that's why I went with the Seahawks. You know, and I went up there and I was up there for roughly four, four or five months in Seattle. I went through OTAs, which is uh, organized team activities. It's like training camp without pads. Um, yep. we're, we're still doing football related activities and, you know, we're, we have practice and everything, not in pads until training camp. And then you do workouts and you watch film and all that. So I went through that and then I went through training camp and I got to play in one preseason game. And, uh, and then I, you know, they had a big round of cuts after that. And I was, I was on the chopping block. I was actually the last cut in the first big round of cuts, uh, which was, I almost made it to, to week two, but our, uh, the backup quarterback had broke his ankle and they needed to bring in a quarterback. Okay. Uh, and it's all a numbers game at that point. And then every NFL roster is only one long snapper. There's no backup. The backup yep. is somebody that plays another position that could just do it. 
So the guy I was competing with was he was better than me. I mean, he was he was also six three, two fifty, and about eight years younger than me or so, <laughs> maybe six years younger than me. But uh, you know, uh, so I but I did everything I could. I got to play against the Denver Broncos in CenturyLink Field, and it was Peyton Manning's last year. So I'm warming up at midfield next to Peyton Manning before the game. And he went on to win the Super Bowl. That was his final season. The Seahawks had been to back-to-back Super Bowls the two years before that. And, uh, you know, it was a packed house in Seattle for a preseason game. It rained part of the game. It was like everything you could have ever hoped for in that experience. And uh, I played the entire second half, and I did great. I did actually did really well. But like all like all good things, it, it, it came to an end. It just came to an end really quick for me. But hey, yeah. considering that I, I didn't start even <laughs> trying to play football until I was almost thirty, I'd say it was a solid solid attempt. Yeah. Well, people always are saying that the NFL stands for not for long, right? So yeah, that's true. You ha- you have another career transition where now you-, you already said that you've returned to film writing, acting, directing. Uh, you also have uh, a charity that you co-founded with uh, Jay Glazer called Merging Vets and Players. We could talk about both of those and how do you how do you sort of determine where you're spending your time and and balance it? Man, I I I just. I try to focus on having the most impact, the greatest good for the greatest amount of people. That's something I I somewhat try to live by um, while also doing what I love. I think that's super important too. Like it it has to be something that you love. Like I I get a lot of people that that hit me up and ask me, they want to volunteer or something. They're like, Hey, I want to do something to help the vets or whatever. Right. Or I want to do like, what should I do? And I'm like, I don't know. What do you want to do? Like, what are you good at? What do you actually enjoy? Because if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to be a good volunteer for whatever that thing is. Right. If what you're doing every day, like day to day does not make you happy. You don't enjoy doing it. Like your life's going to be miserable. <laughs> I think at least for, at least that's how it works for me. Um, right. And, and sometimes we have to do jobs that we don't love to get to that job that we do love. But if you're not working towards that, at least, I think you need to reassess. I mean, I think that that's crazy. Right? People tell me all the time, oh, dude, you're crazy. All the stuff you've done and you try to do, like, you're crazy. I'm like, no, dude, you're crazy. You're doing something you don't love. And you're, like, okay with it. And you're not, like, willing to, to sacrifice some time and, and potential failure. You're not, you're not, like, you're so afraid of people laughing at you or you're looking stupid or, you know, you're putting all this time in something and it's not working out. But the reality is, like, the pursuit of those things are what, is going to make you happy. Like that's what's going to get you up in the morning and make you like excited to be here and excited to have these opportunities that we have, especially in, in a place like America. And so for, you know, for me, like with all those things, with for merging vets and players, which I'm glad you mentioned that MVP, it's a charity that I co-founded with uh, Jay Glazer. We bring together combat vets and former professional athletes and we help them find what I'm just talking about. <laughs> we help them find that purpose, that service, that burn and that fire that we had inside of us. Right. There's like a commonality in, in taking off the uniform, right? Yeah. The identity with it, you know, the identity with it, with that uniform, the locker room, like we spoke about earlier, that brotherhood camaraderie, all those things are very similar. And that mission. And I know like people are, you know, people say playing sports and and getting in gunfights, like those are different. Yeah, of course they're different, but what you have to sacrifice to be elite at both of those things to play at a professional level in sports, or to serve at a, at a very high level in the military, 
it requires a great amount of sacrifice and uh, a great amount of time, dedication, commitment. And it's, they're hard, they're hard to do. And they're very physical in nature. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And typically we're, we're in our, we're in our twenties and thirties and it's over. And you know, we feel, we often feel like we'll never be great again. Yeah. And we've peaked. And that, that's a scary thing when the life expectancy is, in, you know, into the eighties now and uh, we're only in our thirties maybe. And it's like, it's done. Uh, and, and it's just, it's all downhill from here. That's not a good, that's not a, a healthy place to be. So it's like, it's realizing that's not true and trying to find that, that next thing, that next, for me, it's that I do love, or I'm interested in that provides me that sense of purpose and, and that pursuit. Cause it is always, it is all about the pursuit to me. Like I look back on football, I look back in the military, the things I cherish the most were those times where I was ready to quit or it was like, this is too hard. It's impossible. People telling me you're never going to get there. You, you know, like you're an idiot. And then I went to the gym or I went to the film room or um, I went to the range or whatever. And I just like, I just kept working. A lot of times I was by myself, you know, and I just said, screw that. I, I, I don't care. I don't care. Like, I don't care if I don't make it. Either. I mean, I do care at some level, but like, if I don't, so what? Life keeps going, you know, I'm going to die either way. And so are you. So like, why would I stop doing what I love? And so like, that's, that's where that balance is for me. Like there's a lot of different things that interest me and I try to do them all. And I am fortunate that I, I mean, it, it's just me. I don't have, uh, I'm not married. I don't have kids. So I know that that's also something to definitely consider depending on the person. Like you can't, those things can't be secondary, but I still have a responsibility to other people I, through, whether it's through MVP or whether it's to my family or whatever. I do have that. I have to maintain that responsibility. I can't just be completely selfish with every decision that I make. But there's got to be that balance of like finding something that you love and chasing that. Yeah. Do you have faith that, you know, there's great things still, or I mean, I'm sure you do, but do you have to keep that faith that there's great things still ahead of you and that it's not all behind you, which I'm sure is, is what a lot of athletes and veterans feel. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I, 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 uh, I'm turning 40 in about six months here. So I definitely, every day I, I battle with that. Like, Oh, the clock's ticking. You know, I, uh, half my life's over. Um, I feel like I haven't done anything, you know? And then I, I, I do have to like reality check myself and look back. And even though a lot of those things that I pursued, I ultimately in some way or another kind of failed at, I mean, it depends on how you look at it. Um, people are like, Oh man, you're so lucky you got to play in the NFL. I'm like, well, not really. And I, I worked my ass off to get to that opportunity. And to me, it was all, it's all, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. So I have to like constantly remind myself that like all these other things that I, that I pursued in the past, at some point I failed, you know, and they, they say it about coaches, like NFL coaches, it doesn't matter how many championships they won at some point, very rarely is it on your own terms that you step down. Usually you, you get fired <laughs> and it doesn't matter if you won 10 Super Bowls or whatever the hell, you know, at some point, typically you get fired. Like if Nick Saban at Alabama, if all of a sudden they had a couple losing seasons in a row, he'd be on the hot seat. And it's like, what? The guy's been, a, you know, is the team is in the national championship every year. And they've won most of them, you know, yeah. but, uh, or almost every year. But that's just the reality. That's the world we live in. So, I have faith that those things will continue to pop up. Um, it also helps that everything that I pursue and everything I choose to pursue is very, very hard. 
uh, as far as the attrition rates <laughs> and uh, the likelihood of those things coming to fruition. But that's what that's part of the allure to me. That's part of what why I gravitate towards those things because because of that challenge, you know, because they are hard and because they do seem impossible at times. That's what you know gets me going. That's what I want to continue to to strive for and sort of the dreams I choose to chase, they have that element to them. Yeah. So how much of the person you are today is from your military service? A a good amount for sure. I wouldn't have the resiliency that I have without the time in the military. I don't think I'd be okay as much with the, uh, the amount of loss that not just human loss, human life. I mean, the amount of loss just in general that, I sort of factor into anything that I pursue. I, I think through my time in the military, like understanding, understanding that it doesn't mean failure just because you're not succeeding every day. And just because you didn't, you know, win this game or whatever, or that that thing didn't work out the way you'd hoped. I think resiliency is a lot of people's answer. Yeah. But it's just the continued, you know, and relentlessness. I, I think I wouldn't be, I definitely wouldn't be as relentless as I am. And I'm, I'm sure it's to a fault sometimes and it probably annoys the shit out of some people, but that's just, that's the only way that, that I, that I'm able to kind of succeed and get there. You know, it's just like, just keep going. Cause most people, they just fall out, you know, or quit, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah. Eventually they just, uh, that's how it works out. You know, I think that's how it's going to work out in this deal with the film and TV stuff. You know, I want to direct a movie. Like that's one of my big goals. And it's tough because the projects I want to do, I, I, I could go ahead and, and probably pursue, Oh, I'll be the, you know, I'll do all these just like war movie related, you know, projects and I'll kind of build my career in that way. But I don't really want to do those stories. There's other stories I'd rather tell, yeah. which makes it more challenging, but it's like, I'm not, I'm not always, uh, those aren't, those aren't always my favorite movies. And those, that's not what motivates me necessarily for me it's like stories i want to tell just change people's perception the way that they they look at things the way that they listen to other people's experience and whatever and so like that's where i want to focus on those movies are hard to make those movies are hard to get financed but that doesn't matter to me i'm going to keep trying to do that because that's what i want to do and i don't want to take the easy way out i want to be a seahawk i want to be a longhorn i want to be a green beret and I just have to keep doing it in that way with this career choice now, because that's what that's what makes me happy. Yeah. So what what are we looking out for from you? What's in the works? I did produce my first feature um, film in January. We shot in January. We actually have to go back out and do some reshoots next week. So I'm gonna I'm gonna head back out and finish up some reshoots on that. And we're in post production. We've got you know we've got a decent edit. We made it for nothing. We made this movie for a hundred thousand dollars, which is absolutely nothing especially a feature film it's 90 minutes long it's like a it's a thriller set in the in the woods in, in western massachusetts it was snowing like the whole time so it was like snow for a couple of days and then it would like all melt like a week later so like continuity was in, was impossible to keep up with and we figured it out like it was just a bunch i mean half the cast and crew was veterans so we were out there just like figuring it out, you know, finding a way to make this work and working alongside and with civilians, people that didn't serve in the military that have the same mentality. You know, you don't have to wear camouflage to, to have resiliency and to, you know, to be innovative. And it was just like, it was, man, I felt alive for those 24 days of shooting or whatever it was. I felt like this is, you know, I got that sense of team. I got the whole, like the purpose again. 
you know, I'm not getting paid crap, but I'm getting up in the morning and I'm going up and, and, and I'm going out and, and this is what I'm doing every day. And, uh, and I loved it. So that's, uh, that's the first step, man. And, uh, getting that thing in the can and getting it done, uh, was awesome. Uh, and now it's like trying to get a product that's palatable, uh, <laughs> for people to watch, you know, considering our budget, it's just very tough, but you know, I love the challenge of it and I hope it'll just open more doors. So people see like, look what these guys did with a hundred grand, nothing. Like what yeah. could they do with, you know, what could they do with a million dollars? Um, and that's still an ultra low budget movie, uh, in, in this world. But anyway, that's, uh, that's what's next. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's part of the reason why I teamed up with Ben, uh, to produce this podcast. You know, I, I didn't want just another clone of me. Ben spent the last 20 years in like documentary filmmaking, even though he's never made a podcast, I knew that we could come together and make it happen. So we're like-minded in that sense. Right. So, yeah. Um, well, hey man, thanks for being on. I know we're a little over the, a little over our time, but it, I mean, you got a great story. We, you know, we could do like a three hour long whole thing about everything that we touched on. But um, I really appreciate your time and uh, thanks for connecting. Yeah, and uh, and I, pre- I appreciate you, man. I appreciate everything that uh, that you do off quote unquote off the field too. I know that you're involved in a lot of a lot of good stuff to sort of honor our honor our guys coming back and those that didn't make it back, especially. So. Uh, so thank you. Yeah. Thanks, brother. Awesome, brother. Thank you, guys. See ya. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Make sure you keep an eye out for Nate, since we're sure he's not slowing down anytime soon. You can check out his nonprofit, Merging Vets and Players, at vetsandplayers.org. You can also follow him on Instagram or Twitter at NateBoyer37, or check out more at nateboyer.com. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and most importantly, join us next time on Thank You Now What.